I feel that if we don't activate our sense of interconnectedness with all life, if we don't start sowing the seeds of what I have called Earth democracy, we are going to see 99% people as disposable. So this is the time to make oneness and interconnectedness as one humanity on one planet, the political project of our times. That's Vandana Shiva, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Vandana Shiva on interconnectedness. The corporate takeover of food with its toxic chemical inputs poses serious health and environmental problems. Corporate agriculture, the New York Times states unequivocally, is causing irreparable harm to the planet. It is ravaging the air, soil, and water, destroying wildlife habitats, and spurring climate chaos. The system, the Times continues, is a vast web of industries and processes that stretches from seed to pasture to packaging to supermarket to trash dump. It produces at least a third of all human-caused greenhouse gases, unquote. There are alternatives. We can learn much from traditional organic farming techniques as practiced by indigenous farmers. In this program, Vandana Shiva describes the importance of biodiversity and the interconnectedness of all life. She says, quote, What we do to the earth, what we do to the land, what we do to biodiversity eventually comes back to us. There is no separation, unquote. Our guest today is Vandana Shiva. She's an internationally renowned voice for sustainable development and social justice. She's a physicist, scholar, and social activist. She's a founder of Navdanya and director of the Research Foundation for Science, Technology, and Natural Resource Policy in New Delhi. She's the recipient of the Sydney Peace Prize and of the Right Livelihood Award. She's the author of many books, including Water Wars, Earth Democracy, Soil, Not Oil, and Oneness Versus the 1%. She spoke at an event organized by the Graduate School of Design at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And now, Vandana Shiva. Thank you so much to the wonderful young women of the Graduate School of Design for organizing a whole week to celebrate women's power. And most importantly, to celebrate it at a time where the world needs it desperately. We're living through times when life on Earth itself is threatened. You know, design isn't just in the obvious field of design. Even science is about design. Because the way you design the world in your mind is the way you relate to it in the real world. And when you design it as dead matter just to be exploited, you will exploit it. When you design it without any understanding of limits, you will violate the planetary limits. When you design it with deep recognition of interconnectedness, you will nurture those relationships. 
And this basic recognition is what I drew from my learnings in quantum theory, that non-locality, non-separation, interconnectedness, that is the nature of reality. But we have a design in the paradigm of mechanistic thought which didn't evolve, it was imposed. That mechanistic thought is based first on the assumption that we are separate from nature and nature is constituted of discrete particles separate from each other who can only relate through violence, through force, through action by contact. In the quantum world, there is no separability. Everything is interconnected. There are no fixed, essentialized qualities that have been built into the way. People are looked at, nature is looked at. Potential is the defining quality in the quantum world. The fixed immutable particles that cannot change need force. And the kind of force that's now being applied through chemicals, even through the genetic manipulation where the idea is that a gene is not in relationship with the whole genome and the complexity of living organisms, and it's in, not in relationship with all the organisms it relates to. A gene is an atom. In fact, the word originally used for genes was atoms of biological determinism. Quantum theory is based on the psi function, the potential. And because it's about potential, it's also about uncertainty. The mechanical world is based on a false illusion of determinateness, certainty. And in the quantum world, we know we cannot get rid of uncertainty, the uncertainty principle of Heisenberg. To this is linked to the, the fourth principle, no excluded middle, no duality, no either or. In the quantum world, it's and. In the me me mechanistic world, you can either be a wave or a particle. In the quantum world, you have potential to be both, and they're complementary. This is Bohr's complementary principle. And what I evolved in my mind in those years of training my mind out of mechanistic thought into quantum thought is the way all indigenous people have thought. All indigenous cultures are based on relationship, on kinship, as being part of the earth. Part of what's happening right now is fires in Australia. And more and more people are realizing that the aboriginal people had systems of management based on fires. And they weren't bush people. They were gardeners. And they could keep living with that same land over thousands and thousands of centuries because they saw themselves as part of the earth. I just read a poem, Mother Earth, by an Aboriginal poet. I belong to this land. It runs through my veins. 
is the earth in my bones. It's the feeling I get when I return to my place. It's deep down inside me. It's my mother earth space. Whether it's Pachamama as the organizing principle of the Andean cultures or India, what I love about India is we can always give a hundred names. The Ganga has hundreds of names. The feminine has so many names. Bhumi, Vasundara, Prithvi. You can choose whichever expression you prefer because when you realize that the world is one interconnected whole, you also realize that what appears different is actually different expressions of an interconnected reality. That's the ecological principles I learned from my very early days of activism in the 70s from an amazing movement of women. And I'd like to honor them. I'd like to express my gratitude because I say I went to the University of Western Ontario to learn the foundations of quantum theory deeply. But I went to the University of Chipko, where women who'd never been to school were my professors because they lived the forest. They knew more biodiversity than any expert. And long before the international community started to develop the language of ecological functions and services of nature, and I remember this so clearly, women came out with lanterns during the day. And the police was there, and the officers were there. And um, they said, oh, you stupid women, can't you see? The sun is out. You don't need lanterns. And they said, no, it's not for the sun, it's for you. Because you seem to imagine that these forests are timber mines. But these forests are our mothers, and they give us soil, water, and pure air. And then there was a flood in 1978, and the World Bank had to wake up to the fact, yes, the forests had watershed functions. And our government then made a policy responding to the Chipko women, to say logging in the high altitudes, commercial logging would stop. But the discussion on air went on. They said, oh, stupid things. How can they think the trees have anything to do with air? When the basic photosynthetic reality is that the carbon dioxide we breathe out is what only green plants can convert to oxygen and make it die. Now this is part of the climate work, except that, again, instead of saying forests perform this function and are the lungs of the earth, there's now an attempt to trade in the ecological functions, besides the destruction of the last lungs and the last rivers. It breaks my heart to see what's happening to the Amazon. For some more GM soya, some more meat, and... It's not just the biodiversity of the Amazon that's being exterminated. The indigenous cultures are being exterminated, continuing a 500-year legacy of extermination of the local, the indigenous, the diverse. The worldviews of the earth as living herself is now recognized in science. James Lovelock talked about the Gaia hypothesis 
that he was he was a NASA scientist and he realized that the earth organizes her temperatures. She organizes her climate. And as I say, the disruption of her organizing capacity is the instability that is now leading to temperature increases, untimely rainfall, all that we talk of as climate change, I refer to it as climate chaos. We have extreme events, unpredictable, uncertain. We have hailstorm in the peak of summer. We have floods in deserts. And we have warming and melting of the snows and ice of the world. It's happening in the Arctic, it's happening in Antarctic, but it's happening in the third pole, my region, the Himalaya. We did a study and a, and a, a short film on climate change at the third pole. And it's interesting because working with the communities, they tell you, you know, this glacier was 25 meters thick. It's now two feet. We might see the disappearance of the Himalayan glaciers, which means that half of humanity, which depends on the waters of the Himalaya for their drinking water and their irrigation, half of humanity will be deprived of water. We haven't even started to imagine the countries dependent on the glacial melt having to live without it. No one has imagined what the disappearance of the perennial Ganga and conversion into a seasonal stream will mean for one-third of India that is in the Gangetic Basin. But not only are the diverse species interconnected the beauty of it is they are self-organized. I think one of the problems with the mechanistic paradigm and the mechanistic design in the mind projected onto the world is that it assumes that the only change can be external and it can only be through violence. But every cell, every microbe, Every being is autonomous and autopoietic, self-organized and free, dynamic and evolving, but not isolated in its autonomy and its self-organization. It's interconnected and non-separable. When you shift to self-organization and organization from within, you realize that you can have interconnectedness and autonomy together. A problem with the reductionist worldview. Scientists from Maturena and Varela have identified all living systems at autopoietic, organized from within. Machines, on the other hand, are allopoietic systems, assembled and controlled externally. One of the most dramatic ontological shifts of our time is redefining living organisms, especially seeds, as machines invented by corporations. And this has guided, this illusion of seeds as machines and inventions, and therefore patentable, is what has guided my life since 1987, when I first heard this. I said, this is madness. And yet this madness gets repeated as science, and this madness then becomes international intellectual property law, and this madness is then even tried to be imposed in bilateral talks. Because I woke up to this so early, long before the WTO came, I was able to work with my government. We had different governments then. 
It was the 80s. We had different parliaments too. I could work with the ambassador in the GATT, and we could change the GATT, which earlier the draft that Monsanto had brought was parties had to patent seeds and living resources. This was changed to parties can exclude from patentability plants and animals. And for seeds, they could create a generous system. So I went back to India, started to work with our government and parliament. We passed laws. I was invited. To, there was no one else talking about it, so they asked me to help draft the laws. We managed to get in our patent law a clause. Plants, animals, and seeds are not human inventions. It's a simple recognition of kinship in law that plants, animals, and seeds are part of our extended family of life. I call it the earth family. The problem is the word family has become so abused because of patriarchal readings and patriarchal domination. But a family means kinship. And when the whole world is your family, then every tree, every blade of grass, every microbe, the elephant, the big cats, and everyone of diversity in our human cultures, our human colors. I mean, it's very strange because till colonialism, everyone knew they're people of different colors, but it wasn't a problem. It was diversity. And racism was born out of capturing blacks from Africa as slaves and bringing them to work in the cotton fields and in the sugarcane plantations. And that's where racism was born. Exactly the same process that led to the idea that indigenous people weren't fully human. And the same process led to the idea of women being like the earth, inert, dead matter, or at best, reproductive machines. I remember... This must be about 25 years ago. I had been invited to do a keynote in one of the five colleges. And I was looking through the archives to get a sense of how this college came to be. And in the archival material, there are these debates that if women start to study, their brains will grow, and therefore their uterus will shrink. <laughs> That's how mechanical thinking was. And it still is, unfortunately, because mechanistic thought is based on separation, disconnection, and essentialism. And it defines women as purely reproductive machines. It defines people of color as inferior, and it defines indigenous people as not having any human capacity. It defines diversity of humanity into nature, which is now just dead matter to be conquered, to be owned. This birth of capitalist patriarchy comes out of the 500 years of colonialism, which morphed into the 300 years of fossil fuel-based industrialism. And we're living in the continuity of both. When I was trying to make sense of why is it that women were rising to protect the forest, to protect the rivers, I realized that it wasn't by accident that we think mechanically about the world. We've designed our paradigms to declare war against the earth. This 
is basically saying there is no earth family because it has declared other species as inferior species, creatures and therefore because the indigenous people take care of other species, they too are an inferior culture. So in the 60s and the 70s, the use of, at that time they didn't call it physics, they called it natural philosophy, but natural philosophy and a fundamentalist Christianity became part of the extermination. It became part of one colonizing mission. And this then got accelerated a century ago with the oil, but two centuries ago before with coal. And fossil industrialism is everyone recognizes the main driver of climate change. Because what you're basically doing is extracting 600 million years of nature's work to take what she had buried underground and fossilized into coal, into gas, into oil, extract it and run the industrial machine way beyond the recycling capacity of the earth. And not only are you pumping so much the earth's own capacity of recycling the living carbon, recycling the living nitrogen is there, but when you pump out every year 20 million years of her work on fossilization and turning it into dead carbon, you're also simultaneously destroying the capacity of reabsorption. You're destroying the forests, you're destroying the soils, you're destroying the farmers. I realized while doing my work for the United Nations University, for which I was working on a program on conflicts over resources, I said, there's conflicts here, and I think it has to do with resources and it doesn't have anything to do with religion. Uh, I'd like to investigate, and I did, and I wrote a book called The Violence of the Green Revolution. And I realized that the chemicals we use as progress in science are actually chemicals that were developed first, originally, for Hitler's labs by G. Farben, the cartel, that is still the one running agriculture. Right now, they've become a cartel again because Bayer has, been bought, uh, Bayer has bought Monsanto, um, Dow and DuPont have merged, and Syngenta has merged with ChemChina, and then there's BF, BSF. You might have been following the, the cases in this country um, BASF and Monsanto have had rulings on the dicamba drift, which is, you know, it's Roundup use led to Roundup resistance. So dicamba was then used for killing the weeds, but it drifts. And a peach farmer got a $235 million ruling recently. But three farmers before that got cancer rulings, uh, victories in cancer cases. Last time I talked to lawyers... There were more than 80,000 cases in this country of cancer victims because of the use of Roundup. And here again is evidence that what we do to the earth, what we do to the land, what we do to biodiversity eventually comes back to us. There is no separation. So the health of the planet and our health is one health. The health of the planet is both the amazing 
capacity of the earth to regulate our climate systems, and we disrupt those regulatory processes, you basically do what the problem of diabetes is. Diabetes is called a metabolic disease. I call climate change the planetary metabolic disease. Pumping too much carbon dioxide, too much nitrogen oxide. Nitrogen fertilizers emit nitrous oxide, which is 300 times more lethal for climate instability. And most of the methane is coming either from animal factory farms or the huge dumps of garbage. The sources of greenhouse gases. I'd written this book, Soil Not Oil. This was 2009. And that's when I said, why aren't they looking at the soil? And at that point, my assessment was about 45% of the greenhouse gases come from a system of producing food that's fully based on fossil fuels and chemicals derived from fossil fuels. The petrochemical industry is a fossil fuel industry. The figures now are the production is contributing 11 to 15% of greenhouse gases. Land use change and deforestation sounds very tame, but it's basically chopping the Amazon and the rainforests of Indonesia for palm oil. It's 15 to 20%. Processing, transport, packaging, retail is 20%. And at the end of it, you get degraded food that gives you chronic diseases. It's not food anymore. I say you've turned food into anti-food. Because food is supposed to nourish you. On the other hand, as I shared those figures with you, we have a system. If we co-create with the living earth and get out of this trap that the earth is inert and dead and we are her conquerors and we re-establish the recognition that we are part of the earth and as participants in her processes, we can practice non-violently. And in this non-violence, lies the hope for the future. All the data is showing that at the rate at which we have been recycling carbon and nitrogen on our farm, if the whole world farmed through biodiversity, whole world farmed organically, we could actually reverse climate change. And we'd have good food, and we'd have livelihoods, and we'd have peaceful societies. Because what the biodiversity is doing is pulling out that excess carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide from the atmosphere through the plants and putting it back where it belongs in the soil. This is a living earth solution. It's the denial of the life of the earth and her capacities to create, to heal, to recycle that has allowed an illusion of conquest, but a system that's gone crazy is not a system in which you are in charge. The idea of conquest has given us this world, this new little being that's brought panic to everyone. And then the title of The Economist says, and it's going global. We're supposed to stay local. Only the big players were supposed to be global. How can these nasty, pesty viruses go global? It throws the system into disarray because when you discount the life of the other, it could be a microbe, you in fact create a recipe for disorder. No wall 
will prevent this moving. So I started to save seeds 87 onwards to defend the integrity of the seed, the diversity of the seed, the freedom of the farmers to save and exchange seeds. And initially, we just saved seeds of foods, food crops because that's where the biggest assault was. But then suicide started in the cotton area. And uh, basically, in a very, very rapid period, I won't go into too much detail, but 99% of the cotton became BT cotton owned and controlled by Monsanto, who locked Indian companies into licensing arrangements, got the farmers to give up their seeds through something called seed replacement, and there was a monopoly. That's when I started saving cotton seeds. And then we started to work with farmers to do organic cotton. And then I started to work with the Khadi ashrams to spin and weave cotton. Navdanya, which means nine seeds, and uh, my folder, has, just by chance I'm carrying this folder, this design was actually taught to me by a tribal person in Tamil Nadu who explained to me, I thought I was educated in interconnectedness. I was out on seed-saving trip, and he had nine crops in his field. And I counted, because, you know, after Punjab, I would count crops. If I saw anything more than a monoculture, I would get very excited. And I saw nine crops. I said, wow, you're growing nine crops. And he says, yes, Navdanya. And then he explained to me, I mean, people think if you haven't been to Harvard University, you don't know. (laughs) And here was this tribal in a remote forest giving me this lesson of how the nine planets in the cosmos, the nine crops in the field, and the balance in our body is one continuum of balance and harmony. And if he disrupts that balance, he's destroying the health of his family, he's destroying the earth, and even the cosmic balance. You're listening to Vandana Shiva on interconnectedness. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get CDs of this program and her book, Oneness Versus the 1%, by calling us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. So when I wanted to save seeds, I started the seed-saving movement. It got the name Navdanya much later because of the inspiration of a tribal. But the inspiration for me initially was Gandhi. Because I said, if we had a cotton empire of cotton that took people from Africa, made them slaves, took the land of the indigenous people, pushed 60 million of my people to, to, famine, uh, to uh, death due to famine, I said, what will be the violence of this empire over life? And I took lessons from him of how do you deal with an empire? He pulled out the spinning wheel and said, as long as we make our own cloth, we will be free. 
so I said the spinning wheel of today. I thought very hard, what would it be for the empire of a life? And I focused on the seed. I didn't know anything about what to do with the seed. <laughs> the design came to me from the spinning wheel. And from there, I started the work. We've created more than 140 community seed banks, including seed banks that have seeds that can tolerate salt and an amazing response to hurricanes and cyclones as part of climate change. We've been able to build back agriculture along the coastal communities of the Bay of Bengal. Flood-tolerant rices. They're not being invented by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They've been co-evolved over millennia with co-creation between peasants and the earth. It, there has to be brilliance where one grass can contribute to 200,000 rice varieties. That's what India evolved. Just as much as one wild plant could give you the thousands of corn varieties in Mexico. And even better, the amazing systems of diversity in cultivation. Navdanya for us in Mexico and throughout the Americas, the three sisters. You never grow corn alone. You grow it always with squash and beans. And then they are a complete system nourishing each other. That mutuality is what is sustainability. That mutuality is not just maintaining the health of the earth. It's also maintaining our health. Because we have externalized others so much, we forget that the biodiversity in the soil gives us more nutrition, gives us healthier plants. In industrial societies, foods have lost 60% of their nourishment. You're eating nutritionally empty food. And our work is showing that with biodiversity, with organic, with native seeds, which have far more nourishment, we can actually feed two times India's population through conservation. That's the other polarity, that if you conserve, you can't develop. But develop what? Development is a biological, ecological term which basically talks of evolution from within. A seed becomes a plant. That's development. You were a fetus. You are developed. You're a developed fetus. <laughs> that is development. But if you're bullied and trashed, that's not development. And fossil fuel yardstick has become the measure of development. Years ago, you know, I'm thrown into dealing with the World Bank. Unbelievable. Th those were the times where India had no plastic and no pesticides, and we were declared underdeveloped because we weren't using plastics and pesticides. And now India is drowning under plastic waste, and our peasants are dying with pesticide poisoning. We've done an assessment that every year, three 1.3 trillion dollars of damage to human beings and nature is taking place because of chemicals in farming. The book is called Wealth Per Acre. Measuring nutrition per acre, we created a health per acre to say what matters really is the nourishment of the food. It isn't the weight of a nutritionally empty toxic commodity. And part of what has surprised me so much in my long, now long journey in agriculture 
is how we could be taken for a ride by total constructions. The construction of yield, which only measures what leaves the land, not what quality it is, nor what state does it lead the land in, whereas good agriculture is culture of the land and should be the production of nourishing food and regenerating the earth, as our work in Navdanya is showing, that farming has to be an act of gratitude to the earth. Thank you for giving us what you give us. And we give you back a part of what you have blessed us with. And interestingly, our work is showing that the more you give to the earth and in community, the more you have. The extractive logic that came out of conquest is based on the need to take away everything from the last being and the last person. And giving then is treated as a loss. But all ecological teaching teaches us the more soil water, more water you give to this organic matter you give to the soil, the more water you have, the more nutrients you have, the more food you have. But that mechanistic idea that's blocking our ability to make the shift is at the end of it centered on an arrogance of, of a monopoly on creativity a monopoly on intelligence. The assumption that's been created, whether it be the Descartes or the Bacons or the Boyles, they all work on the assumption that privileged, rich men are the only ones who have a mind. Women don't. Nature definitely doesn't. And the other beings are just there to be exploited. The amazing generosity of the world is based on, on the recognition of the creativity throughout creation. Let there be a transition to nonviolent thinking, to nonviolent action, and to a humility that we need so desperately. And this becomes more and more important as the destruction of our health and the destruction of the planet's health makes us realize that creativity is the way life organizes herself. And when we mess up, there's one step ahead. So Roundup Ready Crops gave us Roundup Resistance Beads. That's evolution. Plants evolve. Bt toxic crops gave us super pests that can't be controlled by Bt toxin. There are analyses that are showing how I've done this for agriculture, but the more you destroy diversity, the easier it is for a pest or a disease to move through a system. And as we destroy the diversity of our forests and our ecosystems, the tiniest of microbes that evolves and mutates can start shifting to unpredictable places, and that mobility is something we didn't imagine, we didn't plan, and we don't recognize. It's that shift that we need also because today the chronic disease, the communicable diseases are growing, but the chronic diseases which are affecting everyone with industrial foods, they are showing the link between the biodiversity outside, the biodiversity in the soil, and the biodiversity of our gut microbiome. We have a forest within us. Trillions of microbes in our gut 
The gut is being called the second brain. We are only 10% human cells. The rest belong to other species. It's time to put away the arrogance that some humans are above other humans. And those other humans are superior to other species. That's anthropocentrism. Let's say a bye-bye to racism, to sexism, to anthropocentrism, and celebrate the earth with the recognition that the earth is alive. Women are actually brilliant. <laughs> and all people have rights. I think we have time for some questions. Hi, I'm Brazilian. I'm sorry that we are now, all unfortunately, interconnected by having to deal with far-right lunatics, such as Bolsonaro, Trump, and Modi. Recalling the article that you wrote about top investors of Facebook being the same as Monsanto, as well as Bill Gates' relations to the company, how do you see the role of big tech companies such as Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft in the climate chaos? And how do you see their narratives, such as Jeff Bezos creating the Earth Fund, Google saying that their maps, AI, and big data will help us save the Amazon? And what do we do considering that much of our social movements are building uh, and are using those technologies as well? Thank you. These companies having that much wealth and the individuals having the kind of trillion-dollar wealth is all post-WTO. Because what's called globalization was deregulated commerce. That's what it was. And uh, the first meeting of WTO was deregulating software trade. That's what shot up Microsoft. Big issues right now. I've just been in Calcutta where I launched a new initiative between Navdanya's organic farmers and hawkers, you know, street vendors, because 40% of the street vending was destroyed in the last two years by Amazon and Walmart in India. So we have to create tighter circular economies based on solidarity to counter these, I call them the extractive economies. That's what the colonizers did. That's what the fossil fuel economy did. It's an extractive system. But this system, too, is an extractive system, and it is a rent collection system. East India Company came, and the maid made money, said this land is ours, and now you pay us the rent. And you starve to death because we'll take so such high rents, it's called Lagan, that you won't be able to uh, feed yourself. Exactly the issue on the seed patenting, which we have resisted, but behind the scene royalties are collected illegally. Uh, in the U.S., I did a calculation. American farmers are paying $10 billion annually in terms of technology fees and royalty payments, payments on seed. 60% of the seed is in the hands of the four giants. It's interesting that suddenly... Tech has developed its own vocabulary. And it's not that we didn't have technologies before. It's just that we saw them as means, as tools, that we use according to our choice. For the first time, 
in human history. Technology in the hands of the billionaires becomes the new civilizing mission for humanity. The illusions about the big technology firms is they create, they extract. They don't create anything. They, you know, software programmers create the platforms that they use. Even Bill Gates didn't really write his basic program. It was some professor, two math professors in Dartmouth College who did the basic program. They have posited themselves as inventors. When basically, uh, we've done a new report, it's um, because Bill Gates announced a new project called Ag One. You know, all agriculture will be one agriculture controlled by him. Where does he set up the office of Ag One? In Missouri, where Monsanto's headquarters is. Uh, but we watch what's going on in India, and we pieced it together. So basically, he's financing a lot of data mining from farmers, which will then be packaged back as big data and sold back to the farmers. But this is exactly what happened in your 2016 elections. Facebook sold data to Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica analyzed the Facebook exchanges on the basis of four hates, hate of women, hate of blacks, hate of migrants, hate of Muslims. And the entire election was done on political ads based on those hates. So as the Newsweek said when it did the story, for the first time we have an artificial intelligent president. So when you think of why are the kind of leaders that we have getting created, it's very important to remember that in these 25 years of corporate deregulation of commerce, you basically have a lot of money in the hands of very few people. And they then are the ones investing in all the companies. The companies are not independent companies anymore. They're basically billionaire money managed by the investment funds like BlackRock and Vanguard, etc. They also know that everywhere... People are on the streets. Just look at this year. Show me a country where there weren't protests. Chile, Beirut, Hong Kong, everywhere. So how do you deal with the rising demand for a change? We threw out the East India Company in 1857. The crown took over they established a policy called divide and rule. And then they started to divide Hindus and Muslims because Hindus and Muslims had stood together to defend their land, their livelihoods, their freedom. This is what led to our partition. And that partition is still being played out. It's an incomplete project. So divide and rule becomes a necessity for the 1% to continue to hold on to power. And if you notice, everyone, I mean, this is something some of the graduate students should do. What are the economic policies being pushed while people are divided? Because that's really the agenda. And none of them, none of them make their own decisions. I watched the coup against Lula. How is it that they are such clones of each other? 
because the past that actually govern have put them in place because they know they'll do the job. We have to remember we are one humanity. We are part of one earth. And whatever we do, we will not let this basic recognition divide us, either from the earth or from each other. And together we are strong. It's uh, my reading and my experience that we've misunderstood Gandhi, that we look at him and think about political nonviolence, but he was also talking about economic nonviolence. I'm wondering what you can tell us about how we reintegrate those ideas into our systems today. So, you know, this book, um, Oneness Versus the 1%, my last chapter is precisely on the three principles that Gandhi put into practice for not just political nonviolence, but economic system. Because his response really was from an empire that was based on violence. And he wanted to shape economies based on nonviolence because they were going to be the basis of freedom. And it's quite amazing to go to Seva Gram, you see everything that you need in human society, he was experimenting with in terms of producing at the local level. So he had three key terms. The first was Swaraj, self-rule, but it also means self-organizing. The power to organize yourself individually or community, not in isolation, but in relationship. Swadeshi, off the place, local, and local living economies are an imperative. If we don't move there, we are going to see more and more people on the streets. We're going to see more and more people hungry. Look at the number of people who are hungry in this country. And then, of course, Satyagraha, which for Gandhi was the force of truth. And Gandhi, interestingly, practiced this first. In 1906, when this divide and rule and apartheid was being put in place, apartheid hadn't been named apartheid then, It was only named as a system in 1948. But in 1906, the British wanted to turn Indians in South Africa into second-class citizens. So they wrote an Indian Act. And so the people said, we would rather die than obey these laws. And Gandhi led that Satyagraha. It's his first Satyagraha. This refusal to cooperate with unjust law is what Gandhi calls Satyagraha, as a duty, as a duty of truth. He was inspired by Thoreau, who refused to pay the poll tax here against the slave system. He inspired Martin Luther King. And the civil rights movement is very much inspired by Gandhi. But it is when King started to take up the economic justice and economic equality issues, that's when he was assassinated. Because the part is you can talk in very sweet ways about civil liberties, but you don't touch economic justice. And the economy is, for me, it's a double violence because the origin of the word, the meaning of the word economy comes from oikos, our home. The Aristotelian name is oikonomia, the art of living. 
And when you turn the art of living into the art of money-making, which Aristotle called crematistics, then you have to practice violence against the earth and violence against others, destroy their livelihoods, destroy their freedoms, take away their resources. So the violence is multiple. And I look into the future. I say, why are we building detention centers everywhere in India along the border of Mexico? Because I feel that if we don't activate our sense of interconnectedness with all life, with all people, if we don't start sowing the seeds of what I have called Earth democracy, we are going to see 99% people as disposable, especially with the tech working on artificial intelligence, to make sure all the mechanical work is made redundant, whether it be in radiography or law or whatever. Mechanical work will be substituted. And if that's the case, 99% people are disposable. So you can either share this beautiful planet with love and abundance and sustainability, or say, it's all mine, every bit of land, every seed, every mind, because what's being mined is our mind now, and if we don't defend the freedoms of all species and the freedoms of all human beings, we could see we're down 20, within 20, 30 years a level of disposability built into the structures that human, humanity will not be able to respond to. So this is the time to make oneness and interconnectedness as one humanity on one planet the political project of our times. You were just listening to Vandana Shiva on interconnectedness. She spoke at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Vandana Shiva is an internationally renowned voice for sustainable development and social justice. She's the author of many books, including Oneness Versus the 1%. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Angela Davis, Chris Hedges, Arundhati Roy, Tariq Ali, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. We also have a series of programs featuring Vandana Shiva. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Vandana Shiva on Interconnectedness, and for her book, Oneness Versus the 1%, just call us 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Sitar Maestro and my dear teacher, Debu Chowdhury, performing Raga Shud Sarang.